Um, first, I'm going to just say kudos to everyone even showing up for this talk. 8.30 in the morning at the non-Venetian location is probably the hardest talk to go to. So that's already fantastic stuff. Um, I wanted to start kind of reflecting back on reInvent, uh, specifically about the Expo Hall and uh, manning the Netflix booth. So who here got to stop by the Netflix booth? Cool, a few folks. And then who's just generally done booth duty at reInvent this year? Not too much, okay. Well, hopefully some folks can relate. Um, we get a variety of very interesting questions when we're doing booth duty. Most of them are actually not cloud infrastructure related, and I kind of wanted to go through those top three questions. Uh, so the very first one is, can I get free Netflix? <laughs> and we, we always have humorous responses. Uh, so mine is, yeah, sure, um, just get your credit card, go on the Netflix website, and you get a free 30 days. Just, just like everyone else. Um, if it makes folks feel any better, we, even as employees, don't get free Netflix. So, Second one is, why did show X or Y leave the service? And I just wanted to briefly educate some folks since um, it, the content industry and buying is not super straightforward, and I'm just going to provide an oversimplification. Uh, so when you have content, uh, there's many dimensions on how you can purchase it. Like location is one, so that's why when people travel, they're like, oh, this catalog is different in this other country, what's going on? Uh, time is another one. So when you purchase content, you have that license for a specific time window, and then we try to curate our catalog to kind of best suit everyone's needs. So that's why you kind of see content come and go month to month. So hopefully that uh, provides a little bit of transparency. The last one is, what is Netflix doing here? Because it's obvious that we don't have any products other than our website. I also give a humorous response. I just say, hey, what do you think Netflix is doing here? And then the conversation ends. Um, variety of reasons. I mean, we like to show our close partnership with AWS, give a lot of talks. Uh, we like to talk about a lot of our OSS tools, and that's why we have a ton of stickers. The one that I kind of resonate the most with is more of an altruistic one. So as one of the first large uh, marquee customers in AWS and then with all of our growth, we've bumped into a lot of problems in the years uh, from a variety of point of views. So when you think about that from an efficiency and a tooling perspective, Sebastian's seen a lot and he's kind of wanted to share that experience with you. So that's kind of the basis of this talk. So how we're gonna go through it, um, the meat of the presentation is that efficiency hierarchy of needs. So uh, kind of using the rough Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're going to talk about how we scale through the cloud, the various tools that we require to tackle both from a capacity and efficiency perspective. Um, and then Sebastian's going to share the problems that we face, challenges, learnings. It doesn't make too much sense to go through that entire history without first setting up the specific problems at Netflix. So I'll start it off with the Netflix challenge on some of what we face, and hopefully some of these problems relate to folks in the audience. We'll bridge the two sections with Sebastian going over the responsibility of the data science portion of cloud capacity analytics. So you have high-level context on uh, how we're approaching these problems. And then uh, we'll wrap it up with the future in Q&A. So, gonna take a brief pause here. Hopefully this jives with what people expected from this presentation, and if it does, we definitely don't wanna waste anyone's time, so feel free to uh, pop out if you have to. Okay, we'll get started. So what makes 
it difficult from a tooling and efficiency perspective at Netflix. We're going to start at kind of the customer-facing level and then peel back layers of the onions and reveal why it's so challenging. First important thing is that we're talking about everything that runs on AWS, which is everything before you press play. It kind of generally works that way. Everything else is our own open content delivery network, OpenConnect. Um, so that's after you press play. So what does this UI actually break down to? When you think of it from an engineering function level, each of these circles representing kind of an instance count over the past 28 days kind of breaks into like two dozen or so. Uh, but when you actually think about capacity planning, you're not doing it at these major function levels. And each of these functions comprises maybe three or four service teams that has about 12 to 15 people each. So let's actually look at it from a service team level, which breaks down to maybe slightly over 90 folks that work on some, something related to cloud infrastructure. But you also don't capacity plan at the team level. You actually do it at the application level. And for Netflix, an application correlates with one auto-scaling group. So this is 2,500 plus ones that we have to kind of manage. So that's a pretty big coordination tax. And a lot of those large circles are you know, a couple thousands of instances each. So pretty complex from a coordination perspective and at scale. Now I'm going to throw a monkey wrench in here uh, related to our culture and kind of how it, um, it's created some challenges from a capacity and efficiency perspective. So freedom and responsibility, uh, we like to hire talented folks, give them a ton of trust. What that means is we don't have any budgeting for our engineers or our teams, and we have no procurement process, so anyone can spin up at any time without letting anyone know, which is a whole bag of fun. Strictly from a capacity perspective, um, you know, when we're thinking about a capacity reservation, there's a lot of dimensions to it. Location is one, account is another, instance type is a third. So when you multiply against all three versus our actual landscape, that's over 1,500 configurations. And when I talked about all of those uh, small service bubbles, that translates to 175,000 reservations to manage. So this is kind of a living hell from a capacity perspective. From an efficiency perspective, if we took all those service teams, thought about kind of our major engineering pillars of focus, and then bubbled them up, this is what the aggregation would look like. So further from the center equals higher amount of importance on that pillar. We'll start with innovation. A rapidly growing company, it makes sense that we want to capture as much growth as possible. So let's say from a service perspective, New service comes out, we don't really even think about optimizing it that much. It just rolls straight through the door, and then we'll optimize or have efficiency engagements after the fact. So that's a little challenging for us uh, from the capacity side. Reliability, um, serving a lot of streams these days. I've, we have like a few minute outage. That means millions of folks can't watch Netflix, and that's people are becoming more and more focused on that aspect because like, we think of Netflix almost like um, electricity, it should just be on and be working. From a security perspective, which is probably the newest pillar of the four, it's just you know attackers are becoming more sophisticated. Uh, PR is becoming increasingly worried about if there was a major incident at Netflix, what would that look like for our company? What's slightly challenging about security is the probability of these events are pretty low, but the impact's super high. So whenever you try to forecast out that kind of impact and then say, like, how much dollars are you willing to spend on it, it becomes a very uh, 
tricky conversation, which leaves efficiency uh, last. So for all those teams, from an efficiency perspective, we have to find a scalable way to provide this kind of context to them because we don't have any budgeting right, in the first place. Let's just talk about from the strictly an allocation perspective. At Netflix, we've seen a huge rise in platforms. So I'm gonna take a specific example. Spark Streaming is a relatively new technology that we've invested in. Right now, one of its main use cases is for training our algorithms almost in a real-time manner, so like stuff like uh, Trending Now rows are even more applicable for folks watching Netflix. That doesn't run on EC2. It actually runs on Kafka, uh, which is our data pipeline architecture. Um, and then that also doesn't run on EC2. That runs on our internal container uh, solution, Titus. So that's like triple level allocation, like inception level. So whenever that kind of stuff happens, we're like, why? This is so difficult just to attribute the cost, let alone try to give folks context on how to think about these four pillars. So designed to be slightly overwhelming, how do we solve all of this? Well, that is in Sebastian's camp. So we need a variety of tooling from a capacity perspective internally for our team to ensure that uh, we can manage that kind of landscape and then from an outward-looking focus for our engineering teams, ensuring that we can scalably give back that kind of context in an accurate manner. So without further ado, there you go. Thank you, Andrew. All right, so hopefully now you have a good idea of the context and the complexity and the choices we've made for our cloud. And this leads me to our function. Andrew and I are part of the cloud capacity planning function at Netflix. And the first thing we did when we recognized this as a problem needing to be solved is instead of building a central team out of thin air, we actually used the three main skills we needed for that team and borrowed them from existing organizations. So those are the engineering organization, the financial organization, and the data org, which is mine. And the idea was that those, those organizations already are used to fostering the skills we need. They already are very familiar with the tools that we'll need. So if we can just borrow the people from those organizations to build that cross-functional team, we'll be more successful faster. And this is my team within that organization. We tend to refer to it as the cloud capacity analytics team. And I'm going to give you a quick overview of what we do and why we do it. So our charter, uh, the most obvious part of our charter, and the most obvious part of our guidelines is that we serve every data-related need that relates to capacity planning, to efficiency analysis, uh, and then there's also parts of my team that focus on, on the other operational pillars that Andrew showed. So this is sort of the obvious one. Every data team does that for some function of the business. The other part is because we're embedded in that uh, capacity planning function, we actually also own the investigation of trends, patterns, and anomalies. We don't just lob the data over to the finance department or the engineering department and tell them to figure it out. We help them really investigate and understand what we're showing them. And then the final one, and one more distinctive at Netflix, is that because we're embedded within the capacity planning function, we actually have enough context to be able to start proposing new solutions. So we're not just waiting for them to ask us, hey, can you build this? We're actually telling them, hey, I've looked at this problem. I've heard you talk about it for a while. Here's a new solution for it. So those are kind of the guidelines we follow. And charters are great, but you've all seen charters go red and then forgotten. So how do you make sure that you follow along those lines? Well, it's really important to have some sort of success criteria. And because we're 
quant people, we like numbers, and our first success criteria is one that's measurable with numbers. So think about this graph as a very idealistic view of our business, Netflix, growing over time. I put a dollar sign on the side here because everyone understands dollars, but whatever metric you define as the core growth metric for your business could be uh, put on the y-axis there. So this is great, right? Netflix is growing linearly over time and we're happy. So what does it mean for us in the capacity planning department and efficiency analysis and efficiency improvement? What does it mean for us to be successful? Well, it really means that we're growing at most as fast as the business. At the very least, that's the minimum. Ideally, we're growing sublinearly. So the business is growing faster and we're growing a little slower so that our cloud cost doesn't overtake our business goals and doesn't take away from innovation and things like that. In practice, uh, Netflix's core value is to offer great content that people will find and then click play and watch. So that's our business metric. It's not actually dollar, it's streams. So streams is equal to the number of times people have clicked on the play button and actually watched something. So our business aware metric becomes our total amount of money we spend on the cloud divided, divided by the number of streams we've served in a specific period. And ideally, this will stay flat over time, and even better, will go down over time, which would mean that we're not spending more money on the cloud than we're helping our customers uh, enjoy the service. So this is the quantitative criteria, and we like it, and it's really important to make sure you're going in the, down the right track. But even though we're quant people, we're not so delusional to think that you can summarize everything with one number. So we also have a qualitative success criteria. And for efficiency, this qualitative success criteria is very important. Remember Andrew's chart where you saw efficiency as being the lowest priority in terms of operational dimensions? That means that the only way we're successful is if the rest of the business actually buys into that efficiency effort and helps us move it along. And how do we do this? Well, we make sure our engineering teams are involved in efficiency with us. So the obvious one is we make sure they use our tools. If they don't, that means we fail somewhere. Uh, we also look and listen for signs that they're including efficiency in their planning, in their designs, in their architecture, rather than just have it as a second thought. And then finally, that's the holy grail of things, is if they proactively engage with us saying, hey, I'm gonna invest in this project because it's going to help my efficiency. So that means we've really succeeded at giving them the tools and the context to optimize efficiency without having it detract from innovation, security, or reliability. And then when we are done with all this, we can parade around the office like this little guy. So the success criteria might sound a little fluffy, but I really want to insist that if you want to solve efficiency in a company whose main purpose is not an efficiency one, you need to be able to make sure you're going down the right path. And those are going to be very helpful. So how do we solve this in practice? This is kind of the framework, company organizational framework we use, but how do we solve this in practice? So for that too, we actually have a framework, and I promise eventually we'll move away from the theory and we'll get into some concrete examples. But we think about that tooling framework along an efficiency hierarchy of needs. Uh, it's very similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I'd like to say that we didn't come up with that idea. It's not an original Netflix idea, it's not an original capacity planning idea. Most data problems and most data solutions will look something like this in terms of how we solve them. But it works really well for efficiency. So what does it look like? Well, the very first thing you want to do if you want to solve for efficiency is you want to know the past and current state of your infrastructure. And if you do anything, that's 
if the, if the only thing you do is that, this is the one you want to do. So you really want to understand what's happening, and usually that's, at the very least, you need to get the right data and make it queryable. Uh, ideally, you put some dashboards in front of it so that people can actually start asking questions and discovering patterns. But transparency is not always enough. It, it's the minimum set of requirements, and it gets you a long way, and we've relied on it for two years before we invested in the other layers, but it's not always enough. And the reason for that is, when you have a complex landscape and a complex architecture, it's hard to tell which part would be the most impactful one in terms of efficiency. And that's how you get into deep dives. So this is really taking that transparency layer and starting to comb it for opportunities for efficiency improvements. Those are usually exploratory analysis, case studies, or memos, or any other form of digging into the data and coming up with a conclusion that tells us, here's a place where we could have a big efficiency win. Let's go for it. Now, once you have those opportunities identified, you can get to what we call actionable insight. So this is really building the solutions that will help us fix that efficiency opportunity that you found. Uh, those can be alerts. I know we don't always like alerts. We have a lot of them, but they're helpful sometimes. Um, there can be summary emails, personalized dashboards. It can take many forms, but the point is distill the information that the person who was going to fix that efficiency problem needs to know when they need to know it so that they can go and address the problem. And then what we, once we've done all that, we're all uh, engineers, or a lot of us are engineers, and we like to automate things so that we don't have to do it over and over again. Uh, and so whenever possible, we are going to get into an automation layer. And that could be some optimization, some machine learning, some simple rules engine. Takes many shapes. I'd like to point out that even though this is all nicely stacked and I made it as a nice flowing story, it's not always this cleanly implemented. So you won't always go through all the layers. You won't always go through them in order. You won't always go through them linearly. Sometimes you will have to step back and then step forward again. But it's a nice framework to put into context the tools I'm going to present for you. So we're going to get to some concrete examples now. Well, soon. Sorry, lied. Uh, a little bit more theory first. So the transparency layer, as I said, is really the most important thing you want to do if you want to solve for efficiency. And you're really trying to understand, to ask the question, what do you need to know before you can even ask about efficiency? So for the knowing part, there's a nice pithy quote there. Uh, if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. It may be obvious. So it's really about, the knowing is really about getting the right data. And when it comes to efficiency, we think of that data in four main buckets. The most obvious one is you need to know your cost and you need to know your usage. In the AWS's ecosystem, that's going to be your DBR or your curve files. If you've ever looked at those, you're familiar with those acronyms. If not, that's fine. Just think of it as your monthly bill. So you need that. That's the very least, very minimum set of data you'll need. The next very important one is you need some system data. So that could be CloudTrail, S3 Inventory, and that's so that you can understand how each piece of your system you know how it's used, you know how much it costs, but you need to understand how it interacts, how they interact with each other, how it's used within the system itself, which resources are being used, or is it used efficiently. So you need that data to really find your efficiency opportunities. Now, those two sets of data are critical to finding where you have inefficiencies, but to solve inefficiency, you need your organization. So you're gonna need some metadata. And that's AWS tags, that's your org structure, that's any other metadata that you will need to identify who's the right person to help you solve this, or which group of systems or services does this piece belong to. And then the final and unfortunate one, we call it undocumented facts, it's also called tribal knowledge. 
Not all the data you need to solve for efficiency is actually encoded somewhere in a table or in a file. Uh, but if you can capture it, it tends to be very helpful. So think of this as finding out which one is a critical service versus a service that doesn't really matter. You need to know that information in order to prioritize your efficiency uh, investment. And those are rarely hard-coded somewhere. So this is about knowing. Now what about asking? So there's, again, a nice quote. That which is measured improves, and that which is measured and reported improves exponentially. So you've guessed it. It's all about dashboards. Uh, Dashboard is a pretty vague word. There's many ways to display data. So I don't want to focus on technology or chart types or tools. I just want to focus on sort of the spirit of showing data. So the first one is whenever you're showing data, whatever form that takes, you don't want to try to solve for every single use case in one tool or in one pass. Chances are if you do that, your dashboard is going to be, or other tool, is going to be too big, it's going to be too complex to understand, and it's going to turn out to be completely useless. Or have very little use. The second one, second rule we follow is, whenever possible, try to add business context. So it's one thing to tell your organization, hey, your efficiency is going down. But if you don't tell them, actually, if you compare it to the, our business growth, for instance, it's not that bad. So that way, they can also prioritize how to invest in what you're telling them. So this is very useful. Otherwise, people are going to start looking at things and ignoring them because they don't understand why it's happening. And the final one, and it's probably the most important one when efficiency at this, has this level of priority in your organization, is you want to be able to get the efficiency information, the insights you've developed, as close as possible to existing workflows. So if you already have a deployment tool, like we have a Netflix Spinnaker, for instance, where people spend all of their time managing their resources, maybe get your efficiency data, your efficiency insight, as close as possible even though even maybe in the tool so that they see it as they're operating their resources. That way they're more likely to actually act on those insights. This will really help you scale the impact of what you do. If you just do a dashboard on the side and you, hope people, you expect people to hop back and forth, chances are most people won't do it. So I'm finally done with the theory of things and I'm gonna go into the examples. So those are the solutions we've built at Netflix over the last two years uh, and try to give you a sense of why we've developed those and why we've placed them in that layer of our hierarchy of need. So the first one is uh, Pixu. So have some of you used ICE before? Show of hands? No, not many. So ICE used to be our core capacity planning tool. And think of it as the tool that shows all of your billing data. So you remember that was one of the data buckets that you needed. And, and so this tool really exposes all of this. So it kind of breaks my first rule of not trying to solve every use case because it is showing all of the data with all of the metrics and all of the dimensions. But we are using it internally. So this is not actually exposed to the rest of the company, even though they can access it if they want. It's mostly exposed to our cloud capacity planning function. So those are the people who already have enough context to be able to understand and navigate a dashboard that's a little bit overwhelming at first. Um, just so that, because you're probably really looking at a picture and wondering what's going on there, this is just showing our EC2 usage by account over time, and then there's a table at the bottom that tells us the minimum usage, maximum usage, and total usage for each one of those dimensions. Um, I'm not gonna spend too much more time on there because we've actually used this as a basis to build more insights into Pixu. So I'll get back to Pixu later. Oh, sorry, Pixu means Scrooge McDuck in French, so that's why we named it that, uh, just in case you're wondering what I was saying. So 
remember what I say. If you want to fix efficiency, you need buy-in from your organization. So Pixu is our internal tool, and we don't want our engineers to look at it because it's just there's too much information. It's not very helpful. So instead, in a bat of uh, naming creativity, we created the class cloud cost dashboard. And the point of this dashboard is to show cloud cost to our engineers. But here, we really took our three rules to heart. So we have very tailored views in there. There's about 10 different views that each serve a very specific purpose and help engineers understand their growth over time, so from period to period. This was actually not built by my team, but by the finance side of our team. This is to show you how we work together. Uh, but my team maintains the data. And it's really showing, using the billing data with a ton of internal metadata to uh, help our engineers understand their growth, their impact on the environment, how do they stand compared to all the other engineering teams, and what could they do to start improving. And so this is an example of one of those views. So what you're seeing here is, say you're a service owner. Chances are at Netflix we have 90 teams and 2,500 services, so chances are you own more than one service. Each one of those bubbles is one of those microservices. The size of the bubble is the absolute change in cost that you've had over period over period. So the bigger the, the bubble, the more costly that change was. The y-axis encodes the relative change. So that's how much it's changed compared to how much it was before. So it might be very expensive, but since that service is already very expensive, it's a small relative change. And the x-axis is the absolute cost of that service. So the interesting thing here is not just those bubbles and how they fall within that chart, but it's that black and red line. So the black line is the growth in streams. So remember streams is how many times people click play. So the more times people click play, the more successful Netflix is. And if your service grows slower than the number of time people click play, you can consider yourself happy. That means you're actually being fairly efficient. Same thing for the red line. This is the growth in our subscribers, which is also a nice health metrics for how fast your business is growing. And again, if your service grows slower than subscribers, you can be pretty content. So that big circle there, playback history, it's a big circle. It's changed a lot. It's very expensive. But it's much lower than our business growth. So you can move on and ignore it. Same thing for that tiny dot at the top there. It's a big change, but it's a fairly cheap service. So you can also ignore it, even though it grew much faster than the business. Chances are it's an innovation service. You're just developing it. So we're going to let you do whatever you want with it. So this is what we mean when we say business context and when we say tailoring view. And we say, like, just trying to give them just the right context for them to know if they have to invest and what they would have to invest in efficiency, they being the service owners. So there's one final example in the transparency layer, and that's a tool which we call Libra. So this one is a bit of a twist on transparency. Remember my third rule of dashboarding, which is try to get as close as possible to whatever tools or workflows your users are already using? Uh, well, in that case, there was no tool or workflow, except if you consider the AWS console a tool and workflow. Uh, so what, what, what we do is we tend to operate in three zones for each one of the regions. And most of our microservices are fairly balanced. So by default, those, our reservations within those zones are fairly balanced. But in reality, it's not always that clean. So what we used to do is we used to look at those 1,500 dimensions that Andrew pointed at and looking at the gra those graphs one by one. And whenever we found some place where reservations needed to be adjusted, we would jump to the console and make modification or purchase uh, new reservations. It's very slow, it's very time consuming, it's very inefficient. So instead, we created a dashboard first that simplified that exploration. So where we showed all the dimensions of interest to so all the zones and all the families and all, across all the accounts. And you could quickly see those shaded areas are how much we're using. The red line is our current reservation line. 
So you can quickly see if you have some usage that went above your reservation line. Now, if this is a pure transparency tool, you stop here. And now you have to go back to the AWS console and actually take action on this. But again, we want to bring this as close as possible to existing workflows. So since that workflow didn't exist or we couldn't really embed this in the AWS console, we actually brought the reservation purchasing and modification over to this UI. So there's a button below each dashboard that lets you add or remove reservations um, however you need to actually add reservations. Um, and so this is a nice example of embedding within a workflow and trying to simplify your user's life so that efficiency actually moves forward. So this is the transparency layer. And all those tools I've just described, we've had some form of those for the past two years. And it's gotten, most, it's gotten us most of the way to at least keeping our efficiency goal. You remember that cloud over streams metric at the beginning? Keeping that one fairly uh, linear to somewhat sublinear sometimes. So as I say, transparency, if you do only one thing, do that one because it will get you a long way. Now, if like us, you have a very complex architecture, the next step, once you've gone, you've gone through all the opportunities in the transparency layer, is the deep dive layer. So in that step, you're really trying to answer the question, what story do you need to tell to make your efficiency goal a reality? And you're probably asking, why do I need to tell stories? I'm an engineer, I'm trying to fix stuff here. Well, sometimes it takes more than a few dashboards in order for you to know where to invest your cloud efficiency efforts. Remember Andrew's chart with the 2500 uh, application? Well, that's a lot of application, and how they interact with each other is fairly complex. So it's not always easy to just show a dashboard to everyone and just hope they'll figure out what to do. So that's where you tell story. And at the very minimum, a story, and again, if you've been in industry for a while, a story often is called a memo or something else. But a story is just trying to show the potential of an efficiency opportunity that you've identified. So it's really taking that one efficiency opportunities, opportunity and writing a short summary of what needs to be done and what could be the wins out of this. And this is how you'll get buy-in from your organization, and this is how this will actually happen. So unfortunately, it's not always this clean. You can't always just take a piece, tell a story, and have people go and solve for efficiency. Remember, you have a complex system. So sometimes it's not so much about storytelling, but it's about puzzle piecing. Oftentimes, the efficiency opportunities aren't in any specific microservice, but they're in the interaction of all those microservices with each other. And that's, at that point, you really can't expect a dashboard to help people see this. So what you do is you take all those pieces, you put them together, you find the right metrics, and finally, then you get, go back to telling a story. But the first part is puzzle piecing. So I'll go through examples so that maybe this gets a little bit more real in your minds. So about two years ago, our UI engineering team uh, redesigned the backend of all the TVs, uh, consoles, and set-top boxes uh, for the, what was powering the UI. So there was no aesthetic changes. Same things, looked the same to all users, but it completely changed how our clients, so how PlayStations and TVs out there, interacted with our cloud. And if you've been in the, you know, company that has devices and applications all the way out there, you know that most of what they do when they test, when they make such a change is they make sure that retention didn't move, they make sure that engagement didn't move, or at least went in the right direction, and then maybe they, they check some health metrics on the devices. They don't really care about what happens on the server side, it's a client side change. So they did so, they, they run the RB test, they checked that all the engagement and retention metrics were green, and they were about to roll it out. 
but we actually tried to jump in right at that time. And we looked on, for that A-B test. So for half of the people were on the old UI backend, half of the people were on the new UI backend. And we compared how much demand they were putting on each one of our services. So demand for us is the number of requests times how, many, how much time each one of those requests took. And so that lets, since most of our services auto-scale, that gives us a good idea of how much more money we're going to have to spend on each one of those services. And what you see here is the summary of, the, our, of our findings, which is some services had a big reduction in demand, which is great. But other services had a big increase in demand. So then we did some cost modeling, and we were actually able to put some dollars on it. And we wrote a pretty short two-page memo. And right away, what happened is the engineering team read that. And they were like, we didn't know. They're not maliciously trying to impact our cloud. They just didn't know. So because we told them that story, they were able to go and engage with the most impacted services, try to understand what they could do to improve things. And I actually believe they were able to improve some of those. So we're not trying to be prescriptive. We're not trying to tell people, don't do this. It's expensive. But we are trying to tell them, did you know you did this? And by the way, go talk to those people if you didn't. And so this is what that storytelling did. But remember, it's not always this simple. It's not always one set of engineers talking to one other set of engineers. Uh, sometimes you have to do puzzle piecing. So Netflix is very, very data driven. I mean, I'm one of 100 and something data scientists there. And because of that, data is close to half of our AWS spend. And when I say data, I mean ingesting, storing, processing, everything that has to do with being able to use the data at the end of the line. So how do you optimize a system like that? It's not like the ingestion people are growing out of hand just because they want to. It's because probably there is a downstream consumer that's asking for more data. And it's not like the downstream consumer is building inefficient jobs. It's that someone is logging more and more data because more and more people need that data and it's just piped into the same stream, so it's difficult to optimize those jobs. How do you do this? How do you approach this? Well, this is how you do puzzle piecing. So about a year ago, we kicked off a project called Cradle to Grave. Cradle being where the data is born and Grave being where the data goes to die. Um, it doesn't actually die, just where, where it's at rest. And the goal of this was to track the end-to-end -end cost of ingesting, storing, and processing the data. And to do this, let me just walk you through our ecosystem there. So this is a somewhat simplified version of how data flows. So it starts, usually starts on the device side, gets to our edge. We have a proxy layer called Zool, and then it gets distributed to one or more microservices. Those microservices will either decorate the data or create their own data stream. And then eventually, most of that data makes its way to a system that we call Keystone, which is essentially a mix of Kafka for the queuing and Flink for the routing. So Keystone takes in that data and then distributes it to one or more sinks. It's important to know also that Keystone is self-service, so people can create more sinks, more streams, more everything. So it lands in Elasticsearch, it lands in S3, it goes back to Kafka for stream processing, and then wherever you have data, you have a bunch of compute engines. So we, have, we used to use EMR, now we have our own version of Hadoop. Um, we use BDAS on the streaming side. We use Mentis, which is a stream processing engine we've developed at Netflix. We use Spark Streaming. Lots of compute engines all over the place, running on different types of platforms, not all EC2, some are uh, container-based. So what my team did, oh, and we also have a side channel where we use Cassandra as an operational store, but we also pull the data from Cassandra daily in order for us to do analytics on it. So it also makes its way to S3, and then we run jobs on it. So what my team did, and that was very time-consuming, was go to each one of those red boxes, which we've identified as the data components. 
and try to understand for that box what, what are the metrics or the metric that most captures the cost of data for them. What, what part of the data really makes their costs grow? And that's one thing, and that's usually not the most difficult thing. The most difficult thing is, now that you have the cost of data within that service, how do you break it down? How do you make it so that you can attribute it to a team or to an engineer or to a function at Netflix? And more importantly, how do you make sure that that dimension, so say the dimension in Keystone, can be mapped to a dimension in Elasticsearch? How do you relate those two parts together so that I can go in and say, okay, I've, I have a job that processes this data, and that means I also own the storage of that data in S3, but that means I also own the processing of that, well, ingestion of that data in Keystone, and this is all mine. Like, I have a hand in this whole data stream. So it took us about two quarters to do all of this, and this is really to stress the importance of we couldn't find any efficiency opportunity in any isolated system, but we found a lot of efficiency opportunities looking at the aggregate view of that system because we found data that was overly replicated, data that was not used, found lots of places where there were unintentional inefficiencies. And again, no one was malicious there. No one was trying to create data willy-nilly just because. It's just really hard to know what your impact on the whole system is when you're at the end of the line or at the beginning of the line or even in the middle of the line. No one had a consolidated picture. So we needed to build this for people to start investing. So this is for the deep dives, and hopefully now you understand how transparency isn't always enough, and you need to invest that time really digging into it. So what comes next? Well, now you know where to invest. Now you know that there's this quantum leap problem of the UI that's putting too much demand. You know that cradle to grave. You know that there's inefficiencies in the data. What do you do? Well, remember, efficiency is still at the bottom of your priority list for operational dimensions, right? You're still going to do reliability, security, and, and innovation first. So it's all about telling the right people what they need to know and when they need to know it so that you know, they invest in it rather than just be distracted by it. So the idea is to really minimize the cognitive load. If you're an engineer and you're working in a cloud environment like ours or in, with tons of microservices, you have a lot of things to do, and you don't want efficiency to be just another headache. You want it to be simple. You want it to just understand, okay, I have a problem here. I know what the components are, and I know what to invest. It might be complex to solve it, but understanding the problem should be simple. So that's what we do with actionable insights. So you've all, you probably all receive alerts every day. You probably have tons of email that tell you there's something wrong with one of your jobs or one of your servers or one of your services, and we don't like them. Uh, they're very useful for efficiency, and we have one big advantage over the servers on fire type of alerts. We, we have what we call a high latency of action alert, which means we don't expect people to drop everything they're doing and go fix efficiency right away. But we do expect them to, in the next days or weeks, start looking into the problem and start finding a solution for it. So because we don't have that timeliness component, we can play with the timing in order for us to make sure we approach them with that alert at a time that's not too distracting and hopefully not too often either. But even with that, it's still yet another email that you're receiving, and it's still yet another thing you're going to have to look at some point in your day. So what we like better is uh, what I call Insight Digest. And this is, again, going back to this idea that if you can get close to your stakeholders' workflow, you're going to have a lot more impact. So if you can summarize everything you know about that inefficiency within an existing tool that your users are already using, you're going to be more impactful. So it's not that different from an alert, but it's a little bit more summarized, and it's a definitely much more strategically placed. Again, let me go through an example. So 
you're all familiar with alerts. So uh, we have one for efficiency, which we call, again, we're very creative with naming, the efficiency scorecard. And the goal here is we have two metrics. One is your efficiency score, and that's really measuring for each one of your core resources, so uh, memory, CPU, uh, network, and disk, trying to find which one of those four is the limiting resource, so the, the one you really depend on to scale. And has there been any change in that metric over the last few weeks? So any regressions, any, uh, any slow change, any change in the change, so we, we check both the absolute value of those metrics and the trend of those metrics. And then we have a second metric that we process similarly, which are streams per dollar. So it's, if you remember my uh, success criteria at the beginning, it was dollars per stream. Uh, when you're a single service, you're not that expensive in the grand scheme of things. So doing dollars per stream makes a very, very tiny number. So streams per dollar is a number that's easier to understand. So we tracked those two metrics, and they should both tell you from a resource perspective, are you efficient? And then from a business growth perspective, are you efficient? And so. You get this weekly if something has happened in your service. Again, if your service is doing fine, you won't get anything. And then you can click on any of those cards. Again, it's the concept of trying to give them as much of the workflow in one place. And you'll get the details of why that metric changed. So earlier here, you saw Titus in the top middle card there that dropped by 77%. So they can click on that card. Titus is our container management service, by the way. You can click on that card, and you can see that their RAM dropped in almost every region, and that's why they're their RAM usage dropped in every region, and that's why their score went down. So this is why we don't, take, we don't make any judgment on that change. You know, there was no green or red on my email. It's because we don't know why this happened. We just want them to be aware of it, and so that then they can follow, on, follow up on this and take action if necessary. So this is the alert. But again, I prefer this inside digest, so not one other email. So I'm getting back to Pixu now. So remember Pixu was that initial transparency tool. The, if you need anything else, that's the one you're going to have. And we didn't leave it at just the transparency tool. So what we added is an inside digest system, which we call the EC2 alerts. And it does just what the name says. It looks at our EC2 usage and alerts us when there is something we need to pay attention to. Uh, something we need to pay attention to for us is when our usage goes above our reservations. So those are reservation shortages. We inspect all the dimensions that, are, that matter to capacity planning. And if there's something off, we surface it in this tool. So what you're seeing here is the red part. So this is a time series of uh, instance usage. And everything that's in the red are uh, its on-demand usage that was above our reservation line. So this is already sort of a nice way to understand what's happening. We also sort those uh, shortages by cost, so you can prioritize how you attack them. The top one is the most expensive one, and the bottom one is the least expensive one. And then finally, and I think that's probably the most useful, is we take a pass at guessing why this happened. So you can see the top app growth there on the side. So that's us trying to figure out, okay, you had a change, you went above your reservation line, and those three apps did something in, within that same time period that makes them likely responsible for that change and that overutilization. So now our finance partners can both know that something is happening, but also start investigating it. So those are actionable insights. And they're not, they don't get you quite all the way, but you can see how they really synthesize some of the actions you could take to fix your efficiency problem. The next step is, once you know that something is happening, once you know a little bit about why it's happening, could you maybe automate this? Could you maybe take action on this automatically? 
Um, so yeah, I call it let the machines take over what could go wrong. And we're a little bit early in that phase, so you'll see my examples are a little bit more sparse. But what we think here is when you're, doing it, when you're solving for efficiency, chances are those, are those problems are going to have financial consequences, hopefully good ones. But there's going to be money at stake. So you really want to safely automate things. We're all engineers, and we like to automate things, but you're to be, you need to be extra careful with efficiency. You don't want to place a $10 million purchase order by mistake. So how do we solve for it simply, safely? So the obvious one is we always start simple. We don't try to build a deep learning solution to everyone, to every efficiency problem. We start with world engines, we start with optimization, sometimes with just business logic, whatever gets us most of the way. The second one is we try to use those actionable insights that I've described and graduate them into automation. So often if you've invested a lot in distilling just the right information for your stakeholders to fix efficiency, you're almost all the way to actually solving the problem. So it doesn't take that much to take that actionable insight, iterate a little bit on it, and at least you have already established confidence that it's doing what you want it to do because it's been running for a little while. So that's another thing we do that to, to help us safely uh, automate things. The other thing we do is we always try to show our work. You don't want a black box. Again, you don't want to place a $10 million purchase by mistake. But more importantly, if your model is telling you you should spend $10 million on something, you want to be able to understand why. You want to be able to open up the model and be like, OK, why are you telling me this? This, is, this sounds insane. So you always want to be able to show your work. And usually, starting simple helps a lot with that. So I only have one example here. And it's a simple one, and it's actually one that Amazon can solve for you today. So you don't even need to build this for yourself. But the, the, the Amazon product that's equivalent to this one is a black box. And we want to be able to understand why it's giving those recommendations. So we ended up building our own version of it. So the problem we're trying to solve is uh, S3 storage optimization. If you've used S3, you probably know that uh, there's several classes of storage, but there's two main ones. There's, there's the regular one, and then there's the infrequent access one. The infrequent access one means that you're paying a little less for storage at the expense of a little more for access. So it's a simple optimization problem. And what we did is we built the logic internally to inspect all of the buckets we had, inspect some level of prefixes we had, and move them around based on their access to usage ratio. And then we built a dashboard to help us understand what was happening. So if you look on this dashboard, for instance, you can see that for this bucket that I've selected, and for a bunch of uh, prefixes, config IDs here, we, we look at the current uh, TTL. So that's how long are we keeping the data just in S3, not even what type of storage it is, just it's in S3. And then for each one of those, we also look at the lifecycle policy. So the lifecycle policy here, it's all 99999, which means there's no lifecycle policy. And the lifecycle policy is how we determine whether something should move to SIA after a certain age of the data. And you can see that, for instance, for the uh, account, no, API account auth, auth metrics there, they, keep metri they, they have an infinite lifecycle policy, but we told them that if you, if you set your lifecycle policy to 30 days, you're going to save money. And if I hadn't blurred it out, you could see how much money you'd be saving. And you can click on any one of those and try to understand why we're making that recommendation. So what you're seeing here is that for data older than 90 days, so the, the top X buckets there are age groups of your data in S3, your access ratio, so that's the y-axis, the orange line there, is below the break-even point, which means you're not accessing enough, and you have enough data there that would be cheaper to have it in SIA than in regular S3. So it's a very simple problem. <clears throat> and it's very easy to understand why the algorithm here 
recommended this. You're below the break-even point, which means moving the data will be cheaper than having it in S3. And now you can have both the signal that tells you how to move your data and also have some confidence that that signal makes sense. So as I say, we're very early in our uh, automation because transparency and the, the other layers have gotten us a long way. But we're going to invest more and more in this because we see it as the only way to really scale our team's impact. If we want to continue to tackle all of those efficiency problems and if we want to continue to have efficiency as being a lower uh, priority dimension in the operational space, we want to automate. So I'm going to go quickly over some of those future solutions. So first, Pixu, getting to it a third and last time. You've seen its current state. It's a transparency layer with an alerting layer on top of it. We're going to take those alerts and add a little bit more uh, math to it. We're going to use linear programming to come up with a strategy for resolving that shortage. So remember, the alert tells you that you have more usage than reservation, and there's many ways you can solve that. And we're essentially going to find the most optimal way, depending on ROI modifications or purchases. Uh, we're not going to automate that right away. We're just going to use it as just a more advanced, actionable insight. So we're probably going to email it to our finance partner or show it in the tool so that they can just say, OK, that makes sense. I'm going to do it. But we're not going to do it for them yet. Remember, you're trying to establish confidence. You're trying to do this safely. Uh, so we start with this. We'll define a recommendation score to help us track our confidence in this model. And then once we have the confidence, we'll work with the engineering branch of the cloud capacity function to completely automate those recommendations. So that's for Pixu. Uh, another part, hopefully I've stressed how much, how data is important for Netflix and how much money we spend on it. So we have a lot of, we're just starting to scratch the surface there. And so after we've t done that storytelling part that I've, just, that I've described a little bit earlier, we want to build this into a self-service tool so that no matter where you are in the ingestion, processing, or um, storage phase of the data lifecycle, you can quickly know that you are part of it. How much are you part of it? Like, How much are we spending for that part of yours? Are there places with low usage that are developing over time? And the most important one that we found with our investigation was, is there a lot of data replication? Because we have a, we have a bunch of self-service pieces within that data framework. There's a lot of things that are done duplicatively, and so we want to be able to find those easily. And then finally, the hope is that this will eventually make it so the, our platform teams, our data platform teams, think Kafka and Spark and Hadoop, they can use the signal from that self-service tool as a way to automate efficiency improvements for their platform. And the final frontier for us will be the device cloud interaction. So as I mentioned, it's not always top of mind for the client teams to think about their impact on the cloud. So we want to make it easier for them to think about it. Again, we don't want to be prescriptive, but we want to make sure they know. And the main thing we're going to do there is for every A-B test they're running, we're going to give them a dollar cloud impact. So if your A-B test, if there's a cell in your A-B test that's putting more demand on our cloud services, we will tell you how much more demand and what's the potential cost of it. Uh, and to give them even a more general macro lens of their impact on the cloud, for each device family, think like PlayStation versus TVs versus uh, set-top boxes, we will also tell them you're responsible for X percent of that service. This is why that service is there, and X percent of it is for you. So again, the goal there is to really help them have the context so that they can make informed decisions, and efficiency is less of a problem. So this concludes uh, my solutions menu there, and hopefully you've taken some good ideas in there, but let, let me just go over some key takeaways. 
The first one is given our scale, our architecture, and our priorities, we've chosen to invest in efficiency by having a central team really champion it, but by having that team help all of the engineering organization enforce those efficiency solutions. And the way we do this is we've progressively worked our way through our efficiency hierarchy of needs. And that's helped us really prioritize and tackle the low-hanging fruits first. First one is we've invested in transparency. And again, that's helped us for two years. So if you do anything, do that one. And that's really helped your organization and helped yourself get the context you need to start finding those efficiency problems. Then we found that there was a lot of places where it was too complex to just have a dashboard explain everything. So we've invested in deep dives. And that's really telling compelling stories, assembling puzzle, and helping people understand why and how to solve this. On top of this, we built actionable insights. Again, that's to help people know what they need to know, when they need to know it, so that they can go and solve it. And finally, we're starting to work our way through automation, which we hope is the way we're going to really scale our team's impact. And with that, uh, we'll open it to questions, if you want to know anything more than what we've just said. Thank you. I couldn't hear it very well. Can't, is there a microphone somewhere? <laughs> I couldn't hear your question completely. How do you factor in serverless? Yeah. Oh, serverless. Um, so we don't have any significant workloads on any serverless uh, infrastructure, so we haven't really looked into that yet. Thank you. Yes. So, just ignore them. <laughs> uh, so, because we're a little bit uh, data nerds, we actually measure the usage of those alerts. So, just checking if people are looking at them, checking if people are going to the dashboard, and then in terms of knowing whether or not they took action on those, that's we kind of rely on our uh, that one business aware metric. So if that service, for a specific service, if that service is going down over time, that means, or at least is stable, that means we're doing our job. Also, if we're feeling strongly enough about a particular one, we can do a manual follow-up, but it's not been consistent that people have followed their alerts, and oftentimes people are like, yeah, no, I just put this to spam. <laughs> so, whole variety of responses. That's one more there. Mm -hmm. So we, we are when it makes sense. So yeah, that dashboard is really just the diagnosis layer of making sure it's working. And then uh, our platform team. So the, the trick with automation, especially when you're a data team, is you don't necessarily want to own the operational side of things, but you do, we own the signal. So we essentially tell them, hey, this needs to move, and then they, they move it. So they have a script that does that automatically. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good question. So it's a, it's a, they're all internal tools. Uh, some of them use off-the-shelf solution like Tableau. Uh, some of them, because of the scale, that's often our problem. So Pixu, for instance, we tried to do this in Tableau, but our billing file is 1.2 billion records a month now. So it just, Tableau couldn't handle it. Um, so yeah, 
a lot of in-house stuff. And it's because we bake a lot of business logic, so none of the vendor solution really worked for us. And we've also started investing in this a little while ago. So. Hi. Yes. So do you aim for 100% coverage of No. Um, no, we don't. I mean, sometimes it's financially optimal not to cover 100%. Sometimes we actually cover over 100% because there's some services that we deem extremely critical. So we want to have a little layer of buffer as well. So it varies. Uh, yeah, using a zonal capacity reservation. And sometimes we'll have uh, unknown bursts, like uh, Stranger Things season two kind of caught yeah. us off guard. <laughs> So for, for most of the day-to-day -day stuff, we just use us whether, whether or not we're paying for that instance, so whether or not it's up. Uh, but we also have those efficiency scorecards where we look at actual resource utilization within the instances. Yeah. And actually, in certain use cases, we'll go even deeper. Uh, so one of the per people on the performance engineering team, he has flame graphs, which is OSS. Yeah, I think so. OK. Well, it shows like individual threads and what's actually running on them. And for one of our largest services, which is uh, multiple thousands of M416 XLs globally, we actually went down to the thread level to figure out what was going on, and we actually got a pretty significant win. So that was pretty neat. So when we developed that, it was all EC2 base AMI stuff, so it was homogeneous. Uh, now in the container world, we're looking into changing that a little bit. Yeah. do we have that? Yeah, so we have a central team that's called, uh, is it fault detection something? Uh, and they have some automation layer there where you can, you can say for this kind of alert, then the action would be terminate those instances. Uh, we don't tie in those very much because they tend to be used more for operational problems, so like the servers on fire type of alerts, not so much for efficiency. And that's because We've, all, we've taken that stance of we won't sacrifice reliability for the sake of efficiency, so we won't terminate stuff because of dollar motivations. All right. Okay. Thank you. Great. Thanks.